Welcome to Mental Awareness Discussion, the MAD Podcast, with Miles Weber, Heather Weber, and Susan Thompson. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the MAD Podcast, the Mental Awareness Discussion, brought to you, as always, by Broken Trip Productions and Banana Bros. Hop on to at AZBananaBros on Instagram. Get your merch and all the cool swags. The microphone blocks. The microphone is blocking it. There we go. There you go. Now I'll just yell the whole time. Go get your merch from at AZBananaBros on Instagram and follow at Broken Trip Productions. Also on Instagram. There you go. Perfect. So my name is Miles Weber. I'll be your host for this podcast. With me, as always, is my co-host for this podcast and my co-host in life, my lovely wife, Heather Weber. Heather, how are you, dear? Good. How are you? Fantastic. Thanks for holding it down downstairs for me. Right on. We're we're making it rock and roll here. All right. Today's guest, a good friend of mine, a comedian from Northern California, Mean Dave. Dave, how you doing, man? I'm very, very well. I'm grateful to be home. Yes, we're grateful for you to be home too, because that way you could talk to us. So we wanted to kind of talk to you today about uh, kind of the broad scope of mental health and addiction. So um, why don't you let folks know a little bit about your, I mean, history with addiction. We kind of stem from there. There uh, I love drugs and I love alcohol. No, it's not true. Uh, I... Thought I did. Um, everybody that looks at me uh, can probably tell that, yes, I fit the stereotype of long hair, beard. Uh, and uh, I didn't try drugs. I actually was like in junior high, little metalhead being called a stoner by all the kids that were smoking weed and doing drugs uh, who looked like hip hop kids and all that. And they, uh, they used to call me stoner and I was like, I'm never smoking. I'm never doing drugs and drinking. My dad was an alcoholic. Um, so I thought I knew better. And then, um, after junior high, I got to high school and high school was actually like junior high was hell. So high school actually wasn't that bad. Um, in comparison, I don't know. I mean, it was, you know, we thought we hated it at the time, but I, I actually had friends that made me laugh. They were all, I mean, that's kind of what, what we bonded over. Um, stand comedy being like, you know, kind of, uh, one of the things that we enjoyed, um, together. And, um, one of my friends, uh, I remember going over his house after we, I think we had a guitar recital for my guitar class. And, uh, and I knew that they were smoking weed from time to time. And I just, I just remember thinking like, hey, you know, I don't think I'll ever try. I don't know, whatever. And then I wound up in that circumstance where I'm, I'm with them. We were, uh, and, and I tried it and I didn't, I don't think it really affected me the first time I tried it. And um, so I didn't really care. I didn't really, I thought it was like, no, oh, this is, you know, the big deal. It's really not much. It's, it's nothing. And um, so I didn't really want to do it again um, or have an urge to, but then um, months, like then in the beginning of my junior year, hung out with some friends afterwards. And that's when I smoked uh, some really good shit uh, that basically made everything go feel like it was in slow motion. I could tell that like it affected, it affected me. And I don't think any weeds ever affected me that strongly since uh, even when I got like, you know, monster, you know, got monster buzzed or whatever. Um, But I remember kind of enjoying the, the, 
as my as another guy I used to work with in video testing video games, uh, a variety in my consciousness. Uh, that's what I sort of. Uh, I, I, when he described that, I'm like, that's what attracted me, not so much to drugs, but to that experience on, on marijuana. And then later my first uh, strong experience with LSD. And, um, and the thing that I know that makes me an addict versus just somebody who had some kind of epiphany uh, experience on LSD was the fact that as soon as I did it and I, I love the feeling I was listening to music because uh, I was a big music fan, but I was I was enjoying music that made didn't I didn't understand before. And then when I heard it, uh, namely the band The Stone Roses, like, there was a band that I never really got into. I was I, you know I'm not really a Beatles fan or anything, but there was this band that uh, some friends of mine were all like way into, and I'm like I don't really like this band. They're, you know I listen to like heavy stuff and dark stuff, and and then um, I'm frying balls uh, over here at Coyote Hills in Newark. And, uh, and we had a Walkman and I'm listening, I put on, um, and it just turned, put on stone roses. And it was like watching a 3d movie with, with 3d glasses. Like I got it. Uh, and I'm like, this sounds amazing. And it was designed for this experience. And, um, and so that was the beginning of this, uh, kind of, again, just a love affair with just a feeling, feeling like I was connected to something that was abstract and I felt very much okay with all of the chaos of the world and, and um, everything was okay. And my favorite, I've talked with other people who, you know, love LSD or had good LSD experiences. Um, the coming down from it was what I really enjoyed more than anything else. Now, what makes me an addict was the fact that once I did that, I wanted to do it all the fucking time. Um, and the so that was again like the the thing about it i ended up getting in trouble with it and uh, uh almost you know back in 1994 i got caught with 12 hits of acid by the cops in, in oakland which back at that time the big rumor was that you could wind up uh going to prison for uh involuntary manslaughter for each hit um i was selling it and uh i i lucked out and uh, ended up with probation and um, just a lot of, I dodged a lot of, a lot of, um, well, I don't know if I really dodged anything because in the long run, but I, I was able to avert trouble, but the big, big thing that really kind of sucked was that I could have had my first exposure to, uh, to a recovery state of mind in when I was 17, but I went to these meetings where the only people that were in them were these kids that were not there voluntarily. I was the only walk-in. They were all in this hospital. Um, I had to get a card signed, which is very common for people who get in trouble, whether it's, you know, with alcohol or drugs or whatever, um, you get a card signed at these meetings. Well, this meeting in particular, these kids, all of them, uh, had either tried to kill themselves or kill somebody else. They all had done heroin and crack. They're all like my age. And then when I would tell them my story, why I was there, every one of them would be like, that's it. <laughs> And um, so my story was fairly tame. And so I just basically was like, yeah, I'm not an addict. I, I you know, this is what addiction is, is, is all these extremes. And, um, and then a good 20 plus years later, after being a musician, um, playing in various bands and being living a manageable life with, you know, drugs and alcohol, the, the drug that really exploited my disease was cocaine, but it was cocaine with alcohol. Um, cause I wouldn't do cocaine if I wasn't drinking alcohol. And, um, and it's, it was a slow progression. It was, it, and it's, uh, it, it was something that there were a lot of hurdles in my life 
that I couldn't quite get past. And I always thought it was, you know, just, you know, the world's against me, you know, bad luck, all whatever, all of the excuses that I would have. And what in the end, what my programs taught me, uh, these were basically revolving character defects, repeat behavior, compulsive behavior, uh, constantly wind up in relationships that were not good for me, knowingly knowing that they weren't good for me, um, uh, self-seeking behavior, um, just the chronic self-centeredness, which is what the disease of addiction really is about. And um, but it took me a long time to get to that point. And it mainly it took me getting in trouble with the police uh, a number of times. And there were, when I got my second DUI in 2013, I was uh, three years into stand-up comedy. And I do credit stand-up comedy with sort of steering me towards a mindset of trying to get, get sober because I wanted to get better at comedy. I met you during that time. I remember one of the, uh, one of the times we did a show in Sebastopol at the Yerba Mate Center. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I love that place. Yeah, and you were a comic that I, I knew was, there, there were comics that were doing things that I'm like, I want to do what they're doing. I want, because I see that they're they're working, they're they're working at the clubs, they're, you know, headlining shows. Uh, didn't matter what, what it was, but just, you know, making whatever money that you could off of them, but also embracing it and, and doing your very best with it. And what I noticed was the difference between the comics doing that and me was comics that were that were focused were not fucking around as much as I was on social media, <laughs> which is what I was kind of notorious for, because I would love to get kind of I wasn't so much wasted all the time, but I loved um, treating it like because I came from the world of, of video game testing where we were all trash talkers all the time mm-hmm. and chats and all mm-hmm. that. And that carried that attitude carried over into my comedy I was also still doing testing in the beginning of my uh, uh, journey into stand-up comedy. And so I kind of was, uh, would have a lot of fun being this character online, but realizing that it wasn't as much as there, there were people that would enjoyed it and embraced it and thought it was funny. It was equally, if not more people that were, uh, t- were not into it. And uh, who also like, it would affect me, my ability to get booked. Also, I just wasn't very good at stand-up in, you know, live. Um, so I had to really be honest with myself and I didn't feel like I was coming around to stand up comedy until about the end of 2011 when I did a set at Dirty Tricks on a showcase that went really well, like the set of the night type thing. And um, and then I uh, stopped drinking in 2012 for about eight months because uh, I had an incident that I wasn't happy. I wasn't proud of myself the way I was treating my girlfriend at the time. And uh, so I stopped for eight months and there was a lot of growth there, but I was smoking weed like a chimney and doing shrooms every other day. Practically. I was, I was doing a lot of uh, microdosing as they like to say, but I was microdosing like an addict, which means I'm eating a gram <laughs> or, or more. I'd, I would buy an ounce and that ounce would be gone in two weeks. That's not microdosing. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so then it took, and then I started drinking again at the beginning of 2013 comedy was kind of uh, touch and go. I would have an incident every one to two months at like an open mic or something where I got shit faced. I wasn't doing that much cocaine when I, when I relapsed on alcohol in 2013, but these incidents were, were just coming back. And, and I was, I was doing some very scary shit that probably that could have gotten any, gotten somebody hurt or killed or myself, the way I was driving, the way that I was living. Um, I should have been arrested numerous times and basically September 29th or September, the morning of September 26th or 27th 
it was a Friday. I got arrested uh, coming back from Livermore. I was doing my show at, at Sanctuary Ultra Lounge. And then I decided after a couple beers after the, during the show, I was, I could have gone home, but I decided, nope, I'm going to go close down the bar at uh, Good Times Tavern. I went over there and uh, had a bunch of Jaeger bombs and beers and I was going to pass out my car, but I was awake from the Jaeger bombs and I thought I could drive home and uh, I probably could have, but the cops stopped me from <laughs> swerving and it was the best case scenario, the worst case scenario, getting arrested. And basically I just surrendered at that point. And the following Sunday was my first uh, recovery meeting and the long road to a much better place where I'm at now. So hell yeah, man. Fuck. Yeah. Well, I mean, good on you for making the long and winding road to mm -hmm. uh, getting sober. And then also just fascinating to meet a person who like stand up comedy kind of played a part in driving you to want to be sober. Usually it's the opposite. Usually stand up kind of leads you to drinking more and, and, and picking up those habits. So it's fascinating that you were putting it down. Um, do you think that the addiction kind of came about from issues with uh, your mental health or do you feel like your mental health took a turn for the worst during the phase that you were going through when you were struggling with the addiction like when was the mental health turning point for you well uh, what a lot of, and this is this tends to be like kind of the case with a lot of people in recovery is when you when you start doing the 12 steps um, you know, you make your inventory list of, of qualities, positive, negative, you start going through, uh, you get through the, basically it starts with, uh, it's, it's just, uh, to summarize, uh, as they, I've learned from like a guy in AA, uh, trust God. Um, what was it? It's, uh, trust God, clean house, help others. Those, that that's basically the three kind of tenets that the 12 steps boils down to. Um, and when you're doing the clean house part of it, what you, what it because I've done my steps very thoroughly three times with my my sponsor I had for the longest time, um, and what we we kind of you just kind of unearth you see patterns of behavior where I had compulsive behavior that uh, before I even picked up drugs and alcohol I uh, there was petty theft that I did for for a time I wouldn't it wasn't like a lot but like I uh, I remember when I learned that I, how to steal baseball cards for, i didn't like baseball cards but i stole a shit ton of them from a safeway nearby once i learned tried to impress this girl that i liked with the and she was kind of impressed i was told but you know i don't think it was, we didn't have we had a future together um and then uh that'd be funny living off baseball cards. she was empire. impressed by baseball cards no she was like, impressed that i stole like i, I just, they okay. didn't even and the, the fact was, is nobody noticed what I was, nobody paid attention to me. So it was easy for me to, cause I could basically, we walked out of the store together as me, a bunch of friends. And I just, and I just had a bunch of packs of baseball cards that were stuffed in my pants. Cause nobody was paying attention to me. Um, and uh, the, also there was a summer where I stole probably about $600 from my dad, like flat out. Cause I had a lot of resentments towards him growing up. Um, I worked at a, at, uh, this Alameda County fair when I was 13 illegally. Cause he, he dropped me off at the fairgrounds knowing full well, I wasn't legally allowed to work because he wanted me to get rejected. He, he's a, he's one of those old school parents. He wanted you to, uh, he didn't want me sitting around the house all summer. And I, I, for whatever reason, he had this notion that I was some kind of lazy guy when I'm like, my mom taught me, you know, the value of a dollar and to that nothing you don't get anything for free and all that, all that kind of shit. And, uh, 
but my dad was just uh, my dad was just kind of an asshole uh, when I was growing up. We're very good today, love him to pieces. But at that time, he had a lot of resentments towards my mom, and I think he took out a lot of uh, his resentments on me and my sister based on our kind of behavior. Since primarily we we were with my mom, uh, she had custody of us majority. Um, so he dropped me off at the Alameda County Fairgrounds, and the second person I talked to hired me. And that's when I got to learn just sort of like this real gray area of life uh, all over two weeks working at a corn dog stand that I, I swore I would never go back to work at after those two weeks. Uh, and I ended up working there for years over the summers, becoming a good friend. It was it was a strange experience. But um, but after I ran through the money that I earned from those two weeks, I would go into my dad's drawer uh, to take change to go buy Slurpees at the 7-Eleven and comic books. But I found this pouch that I think he was hiding money from my stepmom. And, uh, and it was a stack of hundreds. And I'm like, well, let's just see if he notices. And so I would take a hundred here and a hundred there. Uh, and he never brought it up. And uh, so I, my hunch was, it's just, because also he was drinking a little bit off and on during that time. He He cleaned up his, Sobriety, or he cleaned up his act. He didn't get in recovery, but um, he quit drinking because uh, his his wife would wouldn't stand for it. And then after a while, um, his health he ended up having uh, uh, his gallbladder taken out, and he had a condition where the doctor told him if he drank again, he would die. And he he's a narcissist to the nth degree. He loves himself, and he does not want to die, so he stopped drinking. So, um, and uh, but yeah, so that was his compulsive behavior. So when I got into drugs. That's the thing is once they really got in my head, I look back on my high school experience. And one of the biggest signs of, of uh, addiction is once you do, once you get a feel for it, you, you think about it when you like, I didn't care about Monday through Friday when I'm going to school, I want to, I'm, I want to, I'm thinking about that next time when I can get, I really wasn't really into weed. I was more into acid, but I, I still would smoke weed if I could. Um, I'm very grateful I didn't get into crank, which was a big thing at the time. You know, it was the the precursor to meth because um, that was running rampant uh, in my area. And uh, I didn't know how to find heroin if I wanted to, but um, but there were the few avenues that I knew could get it. I, I stayed away from the drugs that I thought were the ones that really tore people apart. Um, yet I drank alcohol a little bit, but I didn't even like alcohol. So I didn't really get into alcohol until after I turned 21. Um, it's fascinating to me that you were, uh, addicted to psychedelics. That's fascinating. I don't think I've ever met a person. I wouldn't wouldn't say that I was addicted, but the addict behavior was there. That's the thing You, you can't. Uh, you know, it's been proven. You can't really get addicted physically to psychedelics. Yeah. But the the mental addiction for an addict, mentally, it's totally possible. It's like, I don't need the shit, but I want to do it as soon as I like I basically someone who's not an addict who can do drugs in moderation, say they've got, you know, three hits and they're like, I'm going to save this for a special time. I got three hits. I'm going to do this as soon as I got them. I'm going to try and space it out. I'm going to do one tonight, stay up all night, go to school tomorrow, maybe do the other one after school tomorrow. Those things will be gone. They will not. Everything's a special time for me. Yeah. So, special times right now. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, and the odd thing was too, is I was, uh, I talk so much today 
I used to be a quiet kid. I never used to talk to people that much. Uh, one of my friends, Mario, who just recently passed, God rest him, you know, rest his soul. He uh, he said, he was like, you were never talked. And then you did all that acid. And then you turned 23 and you started talking. You haven't shut up since. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I love him for, for saying that. Um, but um, hilarious. And when I would do acid, I felt very comfortable in social circumstances. Even if I was having a, a bad trip, I... I went to work on acid. I took the SATs on acid, I, uh, which I was curious if my if it affected my score because I didn't. I only got an eleven forty, which is not bad, but I wonder if the acid hurt it. So that's wild. Why yeah, you took the SATs on acid's like one it, with me that I don't mess with as much anymore. I haven't had good experiences <laughs> with acid, but you're sitting here doing your SATs on the shit. Oh my! I was coming God. down more than than do it, but I did it. I, we dosed hard the night before, and then I was yeah. My brain was melted. Yeah, I, I still have eleven forty, which is not bad for a melted brain. That's not. Yeah, that's still pretty good. All things okay. considered. Um, fascinating, endlessly fascinating. Um, what things did you, uh, as far as the 12 steps go, which, were there any of the steps that you really, really struggled with, like more so than others? What's funny. I don't know if it was, uh, the thing about doing anything recovery wise, uh, the hardest part for anybody is the surrender part. Meaning like, like, because that's, that's, it's the, the gift of desperation, we call it, which is where you hit the point where it's like, I will try, I will do anything to, to try and, and stop doing, stop drinking and stop doing drugs. Um, which a lot of, and a lot of people it's, it's, you know, when you get addicted to meth, to heroin, that takes you to some really dark places, but you can get just that. You can get the same place uh, with alcohol, with, you know, cocaine, with all of the, the more recreational drugs, uh, even marijuana. I've had, I've had people um, want to stop and we're, we're trying to figure out ways to, to do that and thought that recovery might, might be of some assistance. The, as far as a particular step, if you're fully surrendered, you will try anything like regardless of how you feel so like my probably my biggest issue with with uh in just looking at the steps i was the the fact was is again it's like i already took myself to levels of depravity with uh you know as far as my behavior under the influence uh you know going with you know with uh sex workers they were called hookers at the time but um and uh going to strip clubs a lot in my 20s and in early 30s and and not going there uh because i wanted to see women i would go there because women were nice to me there and i needed a place to sober up <laughs> that would be a lot of my reasoning for going there um made a few friends too um and not like girlfriends like friends friends there's there's actually two friends that uh that I, I, well one is only who stays in contact with me but uh from uh, my last experiences going there but um and so like the it's the the higher power part a lot of people have an issue with this they always the, the biggest excuse i've always heard from people that are reasonably intelligent um in that is like oh i don't know about the whole god thing and me you know i i was attempted raised catholic i don't really i don't know i don't 
you know, I had no problem asking God for help, like just like God, get me out of this jam or something like that. But I also thought God hated me uh, for whatever reason in my, you know, my addicted state. And um, and then here, once I get into this full surrender part, I I'm looking at like, you know, this whole thing of turning my life over. It's the third step where they say, because the first step is uh, we can't believe that are uh, we sorry, we uh uh, what the fuck now I, I don't even have these things memorized um we're that our lives are unman that we came believe that uh we were powerless over our our addiction or alcohol and our lives have become unmanageable that's the point of which like realizing that i'm i'm fucked up i i surrender i give up i can't do this second is that you believe that there's a power greater than yourself that can uh bring you back to sanity um so that's just address that's just accepting the fact that there's a higher power out there something larger than you that can help you you know, find your way back. And then third, the third step, which is the one that I think most people have a problem with is turning your, you make the decision to turn your will in your life over to a power greater than yourself to, to whatever it is that you deem God. And what a lot of people, if you're, there's a lot of, no, a lot of agnostics and atheists in the program. And at the very base literal level, the group is your higher power. These people that come together i don't know what it is about it but it's through the we process i've seen you've seen it in comedy too there's a you know you know one of the things they say in comedy is like you know it's a very individual you know medium but when people kind of you find your tribe of comics and when you help each other and all that we do what you can't do alone and we we don't do this alone i mean we have we all produce shows. We all, you know, we, we, we help each other out. You, you know, you help people get bookings. You refer to people. There's an odd camaraderie in, in uh, comedy. That's very, uh, it's very, that parallels recovery. Um, the only difference is uh, that there's the 12 steps that can help you uh, to, to kind of live a ba- more balanced life. And I wish there was a 12 step program for, for comics to kind of like get, get better and, and become, you know, all right people and balanced people. But uh, uh, but there, there are parallels and there's a lot of people in recovery from comedy, you know, that's the, that's why I think it's so prevalent. Like there's, uh, it's, it's a, it's one of those things where once that third step came into place, the way that I interpret it is I am where I'm supposed to be. So one of the practices that I had to do that was that I would start doing on a regular basis when I was in my first year in recovery and I still do it to this day, um, I used to hate it when gigs got canceled, hated it. But when a gig got canceled in my first year of recovery, I realized I can go to a meeting. There were some times where I was actually relieved that a gig was canceled so I could go to a meeting. I took it as a sign from my higher power. I need to go to a meeting because I'm and because um, I did the 90 meetings in 90 days. I went to more than that, actually. That's what we recommend in early recovery. Find a sponsor right away. I got one. Um, even though I didn't stick with him, I, I, I went with another sponsor eventually. That's the one that I worked with for about six years. And, um, I got a service commitment right away, which is basically to a meeting. You like, you just basically have something, whether it's start a lot of times early, it's making coffee, but, um, I was going to meetings regularly three months in, they made me a secretary at one of the meetings when, even when you need six months recovery to do it, but they saw me there every day. So they kind of, and they were hurting for help. So I, I, uh, took the commitment and I was a secretary for two years, even though we're supposed to cycle through them every six months. 
Um, I was a secretary to this meeting for two years. And then after that, I went and became a group service representative, which is like a next level of, uh, of, of commitment, um, which a lot of people hate because that's being a representative of a meeting at the large meeting of your area. And that's like herding cats with all, you know, you think, you think, uh, you know, seeing addicts in, in active addiction is bad. Wait till you see them in recovery, just try to figure out a budget and all that shit. And because their behavior, it's just the same, but they're all trying to do the right thing. So you, you can watch some heated debates over people. You know, I've seen, I've seen some people almost come to blows over just trying to operate business, staying clean and sober, which is fucking ridiculous, <laughs> but it happens. So yeah. what would you feel like was harder for you, like mentally to come off of LSD or alcohol? Oh, alcohol. Uh, mainly the weird thing was, is I never liked alcohol that much. I did not, because acid, if, if I was really like addicted to acid, I would be seeking it out way more than I was. But acid, I, I never like, it would find me here and there. Like, cause I, I uh, the, you know, a lot of the thing has to do with, I'm lazy. I'm lazy even as an addict, there's alcohol at the store. So I, it's easy to get alcohol at the store. Um, I just remember, and then jobs, I was working in video game testing, very common at those jobs. Uh, they have a lot of free alcohol. Um, they, you know, uh, not in my early jobs when I was working at like Sony and stuff, but then when I got jobs at, uh, at startup companies and stuff, they would have a lot of, a lot of parties buy a lot of alcohol. So, and me typical addict alcoholic, I would, I would not only would I be drinking, but I would be already in my head. Like, I wonder how much of that shit will be left over so I can take it home. And uh, cause I would rather be home and get fucked up than be at work and get fucked up. Um, funniest thing was watching some of my coworkers get shit faced at work. And I'm like, this is a terrible, here I am thinking I'm the mature one. Like this is, you don't get shit faced here. You get the shit, you take it home and you get shit faced there. This is no place to be shit faced. And, um, and watching just, you know, I, I remember at one job, I worked at Crystal Dynamics where they make uh, Tomb Raider. I was working on Tomb Raider Underworld and they were a cool company, but we're all just temps. We're not, nobody's going to get hired permanent there. And, uh, and, but they all, all the temps were active. Like if you work in this line of work, it's very similar to like comedy in everybody trying to get past at clubs. So like they think that, you know, these little, you know, oh yeah, if I just suck up to this person or whatever, like, I'll, you know, you'll get past and it's like, nah, you know, things don't work that way. It may, they may be working some places, but um, the world of, of video game testers was, was very similar. And none of the, I already knew because they already told us like nobody's getting hired from any of these temps. So I'm like, there is no use to being, to being a suck up to try and, you know, whatever, if you want to work your hardest, that's just cause yeah, just, you know, get, make that money in overtime or whatever. And, um, and they would have alcohol there and we just had, you had to keep your cool if you're going to drink and work. So that means, oh yeah, you can enjoy a beer too. So, you know, but don't get shit faced and ruin it for everybody. And sure enough, we had an overnight where we, we had to do uh, we had to test over because you get these versions you got uh, when you get later to try it to a release date, they want to hurry up and get through um, versions and try to iron out all the bugs really fast. So we do overnight testing cycles and we did one 
and uh and and our lead and this other dork got shit-faced uh and i was i remember i was so mad because i'm like don't you fucking ruin it for the rest of us who <laughs> can drink responsibly and test our video games you assholes you got they got shit-faced and passed out in each other's arms in the bathroom and everybody was laughing i didn't even go f- i was so livid i did not even want to see them because i probably would have dragged them out of the office and and uh and like be passed out in the parking lot so yeah fascinating so coming off of alcohol did you find yourself more in a depressed state or yeah yeah Yeah. alcohol and cocaine primarily uh here's an odd thing i never used to do shrooms very well because they would mess with my stomach and then if i threw up i would have kind of a like I could have bad trips. I got arrested on LSD and, and processed through juvenile hall. And I had a great time because I was so open to the experience while I was on LSD, but mushrooms, if I ate a little bit of those and I got sick, I would just start then tripping out in my head about like how disgusting I feel being like this, this, you know, animal that's puking right now or whatever. And I, my mind would be swirling. Then I found the cure for my, my mushroom problem. And that was, years of cocaine abuse because then when you do so much cocaine and you crash so much that's such a worse feeling that no amount of shrooms ever made me feel bad if i puked at all or whatever so it was it was just sort of like this this crazy numbing um and uh, i even wrote a joke about that i remember uh, oj patterson printed it in his courting comedy um blog but um that's so like uh, the crash from cocaine. And I would say also, I, I've, I've only done crank like a handful of times. Um, I never smoked meth, but I know that the people that my friends that have all been in the, in the meth area, those crashes are similar only they would be up. I mean, these people would be up for like weeks at a time and start to hallucinate. And then the crashes from after that would be just, you know, horrid. Um, and uh, but me, I'd be just like up all night on a coke bender, you know, uh, and and then eventually you got to come down and those crashes will just you just feel like complete shit. And then uh, you just want to try to try to pass out and go to sleep. I remember the, one of our little tricks was was eating uh, was taking Benadryl because they would knock you out. So like you could be, you know, torqued up on coke. But if you took a Benadryl or two, it might help you fall asleep. So yeah that works Al- Al- alcohol was like more because alcohol is depressing <laughs> um a lot of times they, we get hangovers right i mean everybody gets hangovers mm-hmm. in general but um but people that would if you go on a bender without alcohol especially with coke uh because not only are you getting the coke crash but then also because you do coke to to try and drink more alcohol where really it just turns the alcohol into like na beer <laughs> where it's just like you're drinking it and that you're trying to you're doing more cocaine to drink more alcohol so it's not fucking you up it's so stupid it, the the logic behind it is so inherently stupid and yet we do it and it damaged not only that but the coke and the alcohol mix and form an even more toxic uh like combination that that hurts your body even more um there was a point at which i was having trouble controlling whether or not i could i could piss uh, I want to say this was like around 2011 or 12 because I was running a uh, doing a show at FCC Free Radio, and 
I could feel it fucking me up doing the coke and, and drinking. And so I'm like, I got to stop one or the other and, until this gets under under wraps. And that was very difficult to do. Um, and I was able to, but still, as soon as my body felt better, I was right back to, to mixing it up. So, yeah. um, What boundaries have you set up in your head to maintain sobriety for as long as you had? What are the things like roadblocks that you set up in your head that you're like, all right, let's redirect here. What are some things that you kind of talk yourself through in your head to maintain sobriety for so long? Uh, it's funny. Cause like a lot of people, uh, the, the, the way that I've worked, a program and the way I've seen other people work program, it isn't so much about putting up roadblocks or, or boundaries. Um, there are, there are boundaries. The boundaries kind of are inherent. It, it has to do with more when you, when you fully surrender to a program and you live your life by these principles, they guide you in a sense. Cause like, if I really was, was, if I, I want, if, it was probably it was me trying to put up boundaries that would make me want to drink or do drugs more. So like because uh, a lot of people are always like in Wonderman, like, how do you stay sober being an addict alcoholic and you work in all the bars and you're, you know, whatever and stuff like that. Um, and my friend described it as like if you work a strong program and you live your life um, in accordance with these principles, it's sort of like a like a like a space suit going into space. Um, it 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 helps you navigate your, your decision-making. Um, I say like, I, my whole life is really turned over to my higher power because I don't drive anymore. So I rely on public transportation or, or friends to get to gigs, to get to meetings, to whatever. I, I do zoom now more uh, considering that I live in an area that's not close to a in-person meeting, unless I take at least two buses, which is just ridiculous. Um, so I rely, I, I have, I've had to change up my recovery program quite a bit in that regard, but I, I do this, I do these things in a different manner today. And that's also because I put in work uh, a lot, you know, over the years of a steady discipline. And so I maintain that discipline to the best of my ability in the circumstances that I'm in now. Um, but also if an opportunity arises, um, basically it's not so much boundaries as much as being open to doing to do those three things that we narrow that I spoke about earlier, trust God. So I got, if, if things are happening that are going on and I'm not, I'm, I'm feeling like, ah, this, you know, I'm feeling out of sorts. I'm not, you know, something, something I might be acting out of self will uh, thinking about me too much. Um, I'm not, I'm not trusting that my higher power that I'm, I'm in alignment with my, what my higher powers will is for me, which really is, Bottom line, if I just get through a day clean and sober, doesn't matter what happens, I win. That's uh, one of the things we said. It's like if I have a bad, if I have a good day and I'm clean and sober, that's good. If I have a bad day or a rough day or a tough day and I'm clean and sober at the end of the day, that's a great day. Um, and I, I've, you, get the the days just stack up. Like I don't, I don't look at any of the, you know, I've got eight years now, and I don't honestly don't feel the years as much as it, I, all I have is just today because at, at any point I can choose, I, shit, I got alcohol in my room and it's not for me to drink. It's for gifts <laughs> for Christmas. I, uh, this is, again, I'm still an addict and alcoholic. Uh, when we get free alcohol at our gigs, 
I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm a cheap person. I try to pinch a penny every can. I got, I'm friends with people who drink, who can drink responsibly and enjoy alcohol. And I'll be damned if I'm going to go spend money on it. If I work at a, in, in perform at breweries that have perfectly good alcohol that I can give away for Christmas. So I, I, I got some and I've got them sitting in here. I wouldn't do that if I didn't feel comfortable in my recovery because I've had, in my early recovery, I remember I had, um, I still had some of my weed apparatuses and, uh, they say you hold on to them. If you hold on to them, it's sort of a reservation. I gave all mine away, uh, early on. I was lucky too. I had a friend who acted as my attorney in my DUI case and I gave her the last of my weed, um, cause she was a pothead. And, um, and then as time wore on, you know, uh, and actually, and then, you know, comedy going better and all that kind of stuff. You know, we do gigs every now and then I, I, you know, if I really did not feel confident in my recovery, I wouldn't do gigs at dispensaries, which I've done. Um, I wouldn't do gigs at breweries. I wouldn't do gigs in bars. I wouldn't do gigs, you know, the, um, but I, the fact is, is really a, I love, I love doing standup. Um, I love performing in, in all kinds of places there, if anything, what I do notice, um, I don't need to do it if it's in a place where I feel like it's very unhealthy. Um, cause there are bars where I'm like, I've ran shows in places where after a while I'm like, nah, this is not conducive to, to like a good, a good feeling of a show. Um, we ran a show in Fremont at a place called the huddle, which is like a, it's a dive bar and I, I have nothing against the bar. I have friends who work there. But we ran a show there for almost a year and the the regulars there were just getting really nasty with the comics and getting drunk and talking shit. And I'm like, no, this isn't, this isn't good. Um, and that has nothing to do with so much my recovery as much as just having, you know, just looking at this should be a positive all around experience for everyone involved. And those are those kinds of decisions. Uh, and I remember the person I was running it with, he just wanted to keep running the show because it was one of the few gigs he got regular money at. And I'm like, this is, that's not a decision. I think that's one of the things, uh, you know, I remember uh, just recently you were taking time off cause you, you got the baby coming and all that and doing things again for your own mental health. And not only that, these are times you aren't going to have back. Like, you know, you know, and how much, how, how much have we, we've already, uh, sacrifice, as we like to say, for stand-up comedy. I shouldn't feel like I I should be sacrificing anything to do this. If anything, anything that I should be doing, uh, you know, I should be living my life and and living my my you know my principles of recovery and just my life affirming principles. And if comedy is supposed to be my gig, it will you know these things kind of happen. And I because I really didn't start living off of comedy until uh i was working day jobs up and uh, after i got in recovery i was working at small foods for two years in san francisco and then i got a job at the mall at a place called what the cluck and um yeah i wrote like you know 15 minutes of material from that place and and some other from but then the place went out of business and um and at that time i uh, i noticed uh already like a third of my income was from comedy my pocket money, all of my money from work was like paying my rent or right in the bank account. And um, so I was saving a lot of money. And, and not only that, I don't spend much money. So all of that money would stack up in my wallet and I eventually deposited. And then when I looked at the next couple months after my, my, um, my job 
went out of business, I realized, oh, I can pay my rent each of these months. Well, I got two months to figure out what my next job will be. I'll figure that out. And, and lo and behold, it's been five years, um, five years living this, this gig based life that I'm still always tentative. Like, and that, and what's funny is comics at the highest level all say the same thing. There's a reason why some of them are that they have trouble saying no, (laughs) they have trouble taking time off. They have trouble because there is somewhat of an addictive aspect to doing stand-up comedy. There is addiction in there and not just the endorphin that the whole validation, all that stuff. And I think the best thing that comedy or that uh, recovery has given me is an ability to sort of like, look at what, look at my goals in comedy be realistic, which is what I'm incredibly grateful for. I never thought I'd be a past comic at the punchline. Uh, and I don't think anybody else would have expected that either, but I caught a good wave in, in watching those showcases and noticing a window of like, they were terrible from like 2011 and 12. And I put my time in in 13. And by the time I got up, I was able to stand out for the next two to three years during that cycle. And then when I got passed, that was when um, Ron Vi took it over. And uh, is, I love, I think he's done great things. I have my own thoughts and whatever, but at the same time, he's made it where I don't know if I'd get passed today based on the way that it is. So I'm lucky I got passed when I did at that time. But it, but again, I also look at it like it doesn't define who I am. It's a, it's a great, it was a cool achievement, but I like working in the, in, I, it was funny. I, he asked me to do a, to host a show at Cobbs, which I had a good time doing, but I was running my show at Branham that night. I would have much rather run my show <laughs> and, and Cobbs is great, but it was, you know, it's strange. I like doing, I like doing my, I like living my life the way that I live doing comedy, the way I live. I don't mind being a bottom feeder of it. I don't mind living off the tip hat. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I do just as much other gigs that, that are nice paydays and all that, but, um, and a lot of that is the balance that I have of just like looking at life, uh, again, just clean and sober. I'm very grateful for what I have and what I get to do. Um, I'm grateful for the good sets, the bad sets, the ugly sets, um, for the people that I get to meet for the respect that I've gained from people like you and, uh, you know, both of you, cause, uh, I know you've seen a lot of comedy and all that. And so to be asked on something like this is like really cool. And um, yeah, and that's, that's all, all due to, to this practicing this regular thing. And, and like every morning, one of the things I do, um, there's a just for today meditation. Um, it's uh, that's in NAAA has something similar too, but I, I, there's things that I use primarily from NA and there's things I use from AA both, but um uh, I text the just for today to a list of numbers of people. Some who are in recovery, some who straddle the line, some whatever they, but they wanted to be on my list. So I send it out every morning. Uh, first thing in the morning. Uh, I don't know if people read it, if they're anything like I was when my friend sent them to me, I didn't always read it, but it just connects me with like first thing in the morning, I'm an addict and alcoholic in recovery. Um, and I just, that's, that's my first primary thing and then when i go to bed i just think try to remember to thank my higher power for another day clean and sober so and then everything yeah. in between is just gravy 
There you go. I love it. I love it. One more thing before we get out of here. Um, uh, what advice do you have to give to anybody who has a friend that they see exhibiting addictive like behavior? You know, I mean, from the outside looking in a concerned friend, what can they do? What do you think is the wisest thing for them to do uh, to be the most support possible, whatever that looks like to that person? That's a very difficult question because <laughs> that's, it, it really varies. Um, the fact is, is you gotta, you have to let them, let them, you gotta let them make, you gotta let them fuck up. I want to say you can't help them, but the, and the fact is, is I've had people help me, but those people, some, I've had people that used to help me when I was, you know, fucking up and whatever, get me out of a jam. Those people disappear when you, when you fully surrender to recovery. Mm -hmm. Recovery is scary for people. There were people that used to get loaded with me. And then later it would be like, I think you have a problem, Dave. And I'm like, yeah, uh, we, we both do. If I have a problem, you have a problem too. Like what the fuck are you talking about? And those people, those, you will see, that's, I don't want to say like you will see who your friends are, but you will see who your recovery matters to if you really fully surrender to a life of recovery. There were people that I hung out with quite often when I was when I was uh, in active addiction who liked to act like they were concerned about me. Those people fall by the wayside. Not only that, I've had those very same people talk mad shit to me when I was in recovery while they were wasted. Like I remember one particular person. Uh, at a party who used to always whenever he saw me acting out on on social media he'd be like are you all right or whatever and and, and i'm like and i would always found it condescending and then i'm at a party and this person's shit face and this person starts trashing me for for the fact that i'm you know that i don't drink and do drugs anymore and and that's the, you know and I've, it, I've experienced that around a number of comics i remember one of the funniest times uh was when i i was i was still working at the mall i went to cluck and uh, uh, Ivy Vasquez was running shows up in Humboldt. Uh, there was, were living room shows. You know, you're not going to really make any money. You're just going to go there up there on a weekend jaunt. And, uh, and these are party people. So they're going to be smoking weed. They might be doing cocaine. They might, you know, whatever. They're definitely going to be drinking. Um, and I was just kind of, I didn't have any gigs that weekend. I was kind of tired of, uh, I wanted an excuse to just get out of town. And I was like, yeah, I'm up. like, I, I hit her up. I'm like, you know, see what comics are willing to go. Um, and there was one guy who I, I, I do like, he's normie, you know, he drank into drugs and, uh, but he, but he was somebody who I, I somewhat trusted. Uh, one of the other comics that was going with us is now a canceled comic uh, <laughs> for his uh, behavior towards women throughout the years while he was inebriated. And then, um, and then another one was a guy that he's moved away, but he just kind of was like a hanger on. And, um, and when I got in the car, I didn't notice anything out of sorts. And then as we were like an hour and a half into the trip, uh, that's when the driver, uh, who is the guy that I, I trust, he was, he was say, hey, Dave, how do you feel about cocaine? I'm like, it's fine. I don't do it anymore. Uh, you know, I don't really have any opinion on it one way or the other, you know, might fuck up your life if you do it too much or whatever. And he goes, Oh, I'm asking because I, uh, I, I was up a lot last night and, and kind of, uh, you know, and I knew I had to drive. So I, I have a little bit left that I'm doing to like make sure that I'm awake for this drive. And I was like, 
whatever makes you a better driver, I'm not going to tell you to like pull this car over and turn this shit around right now. I'm kind of already invested in. He goes, well, I thought you saw me take a key bump when you got in the car. And I'm like, I didn't see shit. I'm finding out about this right now. But the last thing I'm going to do is freak out. We're already invested an hour and a half into going to Humboldt. I'm not going to turn right around. I'm with people that I, I, I don't, it was kind of one of these things. And here's the difference. And, the, and we had a good conversation because those other guys, they finished off the last of that little baggie that he had. And the difference between them and me was that that was the last that we saw of cocaine for the rest of the weekend. Um, if, if that was introduced to me, if I was going to start doing that right then and there, I would want to make sure we have more waiting for us when we were up there. Um, and that's not to say that that was a responsible thing or anything. No, it was dirt stupid. Once I realized I was, I was in that car with, you know, people that, but he wasn't drinking while doing the, the cocaine. He was, he was literally doing the cocaine to try and maintain, uh, you know, his focus getting to the, to the end of the line. I don't do cocaine and not drink. Um, so that, that made no sense to me. And, uh, and we had a cool conversation. They weren't acting really any different from what little that they had that was that they had left. And then we ended up spending the weekend taking care of the one asshole who drinks too much, uh, who went with us on that trip, which I kind of had a feeling we were going to do. But um, on the way back, my friend said, I'm really glad you went on this trip because you were the only person that I knew was is sober was going to be on this he didn't he didn't get shit faced the rest of the week that was again after that cocaine he may have had a beer or two but he was like well within his wits the entire time and matter of fact he was getting annoyed with with the other people and that's i was kind of pointing out that like yeah we all we the funny thing about it is you know a lot of times we make we make knowingly dumb decisions (laughs) and i do this in recovery I'm i'm not saying like recovery helps me with it any better but it's like we, you know, we knew that this one guy was going to be a problem. He has a problem with alcohol. He has. It was so funny. He got blackout drunk, uh, you know, did his usual groping of women that I, I told them not to feed him drinks. And they still did. And the next thing you know, he's like trying to grab on a, on a roommate in the car on the way back to the to the place we're staying at. And, uh, and then he wakes up in the morning, feels embarrassed. He's apologizing. Everybody accepts it or whatever. And he's like, yeah, I'm not drinking. I'm not drinking at all today. Well, maybe just a hair of the dog. And then he, he has one beer. And then next thing you know, he's got a few more beers. By the end of the by the end of the day, when we're at the next, he's shit face drunk again. Only this time he's not groping. Um, it was just really fucking stupid. And um, and I wouldn't do that trip again today. I, I like I said, I make my bed. I, I went and did the trip and I looked at it like I was being of service to my friend, kind of, once we were invested in the trip. And um yeah, I don't I don't get judgmental really about drugs and alcohol in relation to other people. I kind of just gauge who kind of can manage their shit. Um, I've been on some trips with people who I know probably will eventually have to be in recovery. And, and but I just offer, you know, uh, maybe an ear when they need it or whatever. And if there's if I don't trust the situation, I just don't do it. I don't you know, I, I have canceled gigs. I have uh, I have. um I remember I was supposed to do the Savage Henry Fest that right at the weekend after my girlfriend and I finally broke up for the last time. And I was like, this is not a good week. I'm not going to, I'm not getting paid for this shit. I'm just going to be surrounded by people doing drugs for fun. And I am depressed as fuck. I need to go to meetings this weekend. And that's what I did. They didn't, they had no problem missing me. Um, and, uh, so that's, that's, that's really what, again, the, uh, 
is trying to navigate these waters, make mistakes and it's, and be okay with making those mistakes. That's the other thing too, is it's not easy. So as far as helping somebody else, you need, the best thing you can do is let them make some mistakes. You might have to call the cops on these people. You need, you might need to, you know, the help isn't there in enabling the help is there in trying to help them see for themselves the, the damage that they're doing. And most likely it's going to have to get worse before it gets better. Um, Cause I didn't, again, I got that second DUI that I didn't, I never thought I'd get because I knew I was smarter than that. So when I got, when I, as soon as those lights went on, I, I never felt more like, God damn it. I fucked up everything. I, I'm, I never felt like I was more full of shit. Uh, and the cops were the best cops I've ever ran into. Cause I basically just told them, I'm like, I'm drunk. You got me. You don't need to put me through the tests. Give me the breathalyzer if you need to for your records. You, yeah, you're taking me in. And these were these young CHP officers. I've never met nicer officers. They were cool. We were, they, they let me sit in the front. I'd tell a joke about it. They let me sit in the front seat of the squad car. They didn't put handcuffs on me. And uh, and we had a good laugh on the way in. They didn't impound my car. They put it in the movie theater. And then as soon as I got to Santa Rita, and then I was in jail, I knew where I was. But um, but they were kind of like these strange angels that uh, brought me into this world of surrender. And that's really what my days, every day is surrender, surrender, acceptance, and uh, and then getting into solutions. So I love it. Perfect. Right on. Well, Dave, I want to thank you so much for being so candid and coming on the podcast and talking about this stuff, man. We really appreciate yeah, thank it. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you Absolutely. for letting me talk so much about it. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you guys are awesome. Uh, yeah, maybe. man. Why don't you let people know uh, where they can find you online? Uh, they don't need to. No. <laughs> they, uh, I'm on, uh, I'm on, you can follow me on Instagram at mean underscore Dave. Uh, if you want to be one of my very few Twitter followers where I, I really talk shit to the wind uh, at mean Dave time. And if, uh, if you want to try to friend me on Facebook, I hope we have mutual friends. Um, but, uh, but yeah, other than that, uh, come to a show and then meet me and then we'll, then, then maybe we'll be friends. Absolutely. 100% support it. Follow Dave online. You can follow me at miles Weber Joker on everything social. You could also follow the podcast where Heather runs our social on Instagram at mad podcast. And uh, like I said earlier, make sure you follow at broken drip productions at AZ banana bros. We're here every Thursday doing mad podcast, discussing things with fine people like me and Dave. So my name is miles Weber. Got my wife, Heather Weber over there. We'll talk to you next time, everybody. Thanks for listening and watching. Bye. Sweet.